Good morning. Scripture reading this morning is from the 11th chapter of Romans, verses 1 through 12. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people from whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me? And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Well, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? This is the word of the Lord. A couple of years ago, there was a controversy in England. It actually was found its way into other other parts of the world as well. Um, but you know, most spoken about probably in and around London, England. And it was over an advertising campaign uh, supported by what some people call, by who some people call the neo atheists. These little wars that we wage. It's a bus campaign. I've got this. Is it going? Here we go. Whoop, one back. I had this earlier. Why is that? I, I have that picture. And it was showing earlier. Can you get it to that, Allison, or no? We literally had it. There we go. Uh, this was the campaign. You might recognize at least one individual in there. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There are many ways to consider what is said in the ad and why, and some in the Christian community responded with the requisite fury, cries of persecution, and even cries of, why won't the bus companies take our ads? Because in some cases they rejected those. But I was then, and I am now, interested in the campaign for another reason. If you're going to take a shot at religion, at God, and in a country such as England, uh, the concept of God carries with it a Christian memory, and I think that's probably the more important, important word. It's a memory. If you're going to take a shot at God, why would you assume what the ad is assuming? 
Why would you assume that if there is a God, the human natural response is worry? That's why the ad's offensive to me. I don't mind the religion versus atheism battle. We're told in Scripture that God uses atheism. We're told in this text that God can even use non-faith. But if there's a God, then we are to be worried in, in the context of this ad. And, the, and, and of course, extended to that, that enjoyment of life is better achieved and pursued without God. Now, you know many people who have turned their backs on church or faith or because that's the conclusion they've come to. And I don't want to point the finger at them. It might be because of religion as they understood it. But they said, once I turn my back on religion, they might say, uh, it was easier for me to pursue an enjoyable life. This is deeply troubling to me. Uh, And not actually from the position of non-faith, but from the position of faith. What is it that is being rejected? What it means is that generations of people and people around the world and across the sea have equated turning away from God or the belief in God with a newfound release from fear, and that is curious. As I understand the gospel, life and light and hope and salvation, as I understand the gospel, God is good and turns towards us while we are yet sinners. So you say, well, the person who's a sinner and turned away from God and they have a right to be worried. No. While we are yet sinners. Life to the full. And then in my life I am called to reflect this light and purpose and meaning beyond circumstance or suffering or fear, beyond even death. And as I understand the gospel, I would say this, if we're going to do it in the language of the ad, there probably is a God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. I have come that you might have life, and life to the full. It's the opposite sentiment. Those ads are attacking a God I don't know. We're getting to the end of this theological section. Is it just my... Uh, okay, I'm sorry if it, if it sticks here a bit. If, it, if it's too distracting, we'll turn it off. We're getting to the end of a theological section in the book of Romans within a larger study of the Christian gospel. Chapters 1 to 8 describe this gospel. A righteousness from God has been revealed in Jesus. People have tried to make it on their own, either religiously or non-religiously, and it didn't work. But a righteousness from God has been revealed. Chapters 12 to 16, which we'll begin next week, show us or outline for us how to live in light of the gospel. Or the other way you could put it is how to live in light of God's mercy. Do you know you have that responsibility this week before your family, before yourself, before others in this world? This question all the time before you, how am I to live in light of God's mercy? I mean, you can't lead worship, you can't interact with other people, you can't, without, this is the, Christ, this is the Christian question in terms of behavior, in terms of ethics. How am I to live in light of God's mercy? But chapters 9 to 11 have this theological inter, interlude, 
a confusing, of a confusing nature, but um, of great importance. So that's where we are. We have reminded ourselves that the first question, actually I'm going to change the word there and say the big question. Sometimes I'll say things like the only question, and when I say only, I mean most important. Okay? I know there are other questions, but the big question theologically in the Christian life is not, of course, as we've said, who is in and who is out, but the big question is who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? You see how that takes the focus off of you and, and the human and puts it on God? Who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? And my responsibility as a preacher is to, is to tell you about this God. See, a lot of churches are filled because people think the responsibility of the preacher is to, is to tell you five things you need to know for this week or something like that. that you, you might get those. I'm glad if you do. But the responsibility of the preacher in this world is to tell the people about this God. And Jesus Christ in whom he is revealed. When you ask that question first, who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? Now, I want you to take that question and take a person that you struggle with in your own family or, or a fear that you have represented by a particular geographical place, you know, work or, or whatever it is. Take that question and put it over that place or over that relationship right now. So instead of they need to change or they need to do these things or I wish they'd become a Christian or something like that. Put this one over. Who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? It changes everything. Last week we looked at the human response to this. That God is not some like some company offering a rebate that they hope not to have to give out. But that what God has done for us, He has done for all. God so loved the world. And his goodness does not mean forcing you, but there is an awakening to this. We were reminded last week in chapter 10 that the word is near, the gospel is near. And if you, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will know this salvation. So I would put the question to you, and we need to, I, I need to get better at this. We need to get better at this as a church to consistently put that question. Not as aggressive, not as fear-mongering. But did you know that you can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth? Have you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? And if you do that, you will know the salvation that is offered to all. And you'll live in light of that. I have done that. I can say I'm a Christian. So some would say, well, you're a Christian because you've done that. I would say, well, not quite. I'm a Christian because God has done this for me. I've just been awakened to what he's done. It's not out of fear, but out of gratitude and love. And my whole identity changes because of this. Well, in chapter 11, Paul is going to close this theological argument. Some of you would be thankful for that. We'll get on to practical living next week. Paul's going to close his theological argument. And remember that one of Paul's rhetorical devices, one of the ways that he writes and speaks, is that he anticipates questions from people. I do it too at times. I say, well, you might ask this, right? And then I answer the question that you actually haven't asked, but maybe in your mind you did. 
And in this section, there are two questions. And they're very important questions. The first is, has God rejected us? Or has God rejected them? Or has God rejected some? That's the first question. And the second question is, those who did not respond, and it's going to be described here as stumbling, those who did not respond, those who have stumbled, have they stumbled out of the possibility of recovery? So first, has God rejected? Maybe it's just, uh, first, has God rejected? And you have the answer. The religious answer, of course, and I mean, I mean in terms of, of bad religion, um, or misunderstood Christianity, has God rejected them? And, and, and in terms of bad faith, the answer is, yes, he has. He has rejected. But here, Paul's very clear. Has God rejected them, or some, or us? What's the answer? He doesn't just say, well, not really. This is a pretty strong answer. By no means has he rejected And then Paul continues, as he did in chapter 10, this contrast of righteousness by works. He talks about it most in chapter 10 and throughout the book, trying to make your way, to establish your way. Now, I know that none of you have to learn that temptation in this life. This world teaches you automatically, by default, that it is your responsibility to establish your identity and your way. Churches teach that religiously at times. Secular culture will teach that in terms of security and money and status and whatever else it is. And parents drill the fear into their kids. This is a competitive world, you know. You better do better than these other people. Only six people get into that program. Establish your way. Paul's going to call that righteousness by works. He's talking about the religious aspect of it, but there is the secular counterpart. The religious aspect is following rules and religion and ceremony, or even in chapter 10, going to get, quote, get Jesus, like ascend to heaven or descend to hell and get Jesus. And then the church kind of owns Jesus and will dole him out to people or withhold or whatever it is. It's clear language in this text. And what's Paul's answer? By no means has God rejected. What's remarkable is that Paul is accepting that they have not responded. He is not saying it doesn't matter if you respond or don't respond. He is not saying that. He is not saying everybody's in. He acknowledges the rejection. He's not saying, well, they don't think they believe, but really they believe. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, Even as they have rejected God, God has not rejected them. That's Christian faith. Now, right away, you start to go, oh no, is this minister saying everybody's in? Stop it. Stop that. This is the gospel I'm talking about. What are you doing playing around in the sandbox? God has not rejected them by no means. And then, and then Paul turns to an Old Testament story, the story of Elijah. You remember Mount Carmel and the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? It's an awesome Sunday school Old Testament story that even the boys will like because people get smited and people make jokes about, you know, 
gods having to go to the bathroom and stuff like that. Elijah literally says, you're calling down your gods and maybe they're in the washroom right now. It's just a perfect story. And they contort themselves and whip themselves just to try to get fire to come down. And Elijah is all by himself, is, is kind of how it's written. You know, he's standing against this wicked culture is kind of how it's written and certainly how he was understanding it. And he prays and the God, the God of all creation answers his prayer. And then it gets really Old Testament because people are killed and it's nasty and not like Jesus. Thanks be to God. And you think they'd, you know, have a parade for Elijah or something and say, well, that's it. The prophets of Baal, they're nothing and you're everything. And now we're going to follow the God that you worship. But that doesn't happen. Um, Jezebel, the king's wife, says, I hate, I've always hated Elijah. Now I hate him with a, a hate of death. And I'm going to make sure he's dead. And after this literally mountaintop experience, Elijah runs. Now, what would you feel if you just called down the fire of God? And you won, and you beat all those other people. Which, by the way, is not Christian victory. You'd feel some kind of sense of accomplishment, wouldn't you? You'd feel that maybe that God will... I don't have to worry about Jezebel, I suppose. Elijah runs and mopes. And that's what Paul brings out. Not the Mount Carmel part. I mean, they would have known that. as he said. So when he says, this is part of the problem, I wish you'd read your Bibles. Because what Paul does is he says, remember Elijah. And as soon as he does that, what happens? Well, they remember Elijah. I say remember Elijah, and you go, huh? Many. But you want to know God. It's hard to know the Christian Christian God. We'd say the God of all creation without reading scripture. Remember Elijah? So they have in their minds the Mount Carmel thing. But then he says, remember when he ran? And he was out there moping. Elijah lamented. There's good stories out in the desert when Elijah's running. You like the nice one about God's not in the fire or the earthquake or the storm because that's a story for depression, right? And I'm the same way. He's in the still, small whisper. and It's a wonderful story. And he, you know, Elijah feels better because he hears the voice of God. Trouble is he doesn't really feel better. There's moping kind of on both sides of this. And he's out there all by himself, he feels, and he says, Oh, woe is me. I would rather die than this. He continues, I'm very zealous for my God. Now, any time you say to yourself, I'm very zealous for God, I'm going to put a red flag in your life, okay? Something's wrong if you're declaring how zealous you are for God. Often. I mean, if you're actually zealous for God, you probably don't have to say it, is what I'm saying. Elijah's saying it because he feels like he's being unfairly treated. I'm very zealous for God. But, now, this is where I could put a lot of your voices in here. Don't worry, I won't say who. I'm very zealous for God, but this whole country has turned. Nobody cares anymore. Even, listen to what Elijah says. I'm, I mean, when you're in Elijah's spot, you can feel sorry for him. And I know some of you do this. You feel, we feel sorry for ourselves at times. But 
I'm very zealous for God. This whole country's turned. And then he has the audacity to say the next thing. I'm the only one. Paul says, remember that. Remember that because God said to him, and Anne read it for us, God's so gentle. Not all the time, but in this case, God's gentle. And says, Elijah, there's 7,000 more. And not only that, but I provide, I'll, I'll provide company for you, the new prophet. We lose the screen? There we go. And then Paul takes it from Elijah's time to theirs and says, because remember the question was, has God rejected? How is he answering that question? He takes it from Elijah's time to theirs. You think that God has rejected? You think that you're the only ones? You think that you own the activity of God? You think that you get to decide who, who can claim the salvation of the God of all the universe? God, now hear this Elijah, hear this people that Paul's writing to, hear this Sutherland Church, and hear this, and I can't say all your names, but I would if I had time. Please hear this. God is always doing more than you know. And from Paul's time to now, we have carried this tendency to have what I call a woe is me or a woe is us faith. It's a tendency not only in religion, but also life. The woe is me form of faith takes, takes this shape. I am alone. I am the only one. Things are getting worse, not better. Things, this is a real phrase to watch out for, particularly those of us as we're aging, growing up, growing older. This terrible phrase, things used to be better. I mean, if things used to be better, then you're telling me that God's not in control of the future. This, this, this God isn't about just what used to be. He's about where we're going. I don't trust in the world. And I can, I can, I'll give you, I'll grant you, in the world, yes, there's times when we can argue things are getting worse out there. But I'm a Christian. And so I'm never walking around saying things used to be better. Because my hope isn't in things. My hope is in the God of all creation. There's no future for me. Oh, in God there is nothing but future for you and blessing in life. Woe is us, faith. Entire communities build their religious identity around woe is us, faith. Some of you have been in churches. Should be called, you know, First Church of Woe is Us. Thank you, Lawrence. Well-timed. The whole world is turned away from God. Thanks, thanks be to God that we're here. But we're here and we're kind of angry at the rest of the world. But thanks be to God that we're here. And then it gives away, and our, pro, our pronouns give it away. They, 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 they. We're the only ones left. Just look around and then we say it as a group. Maybe we should say it as, I never, ever do this. Turn to your neighbor and say, I won't do that. I mean, we do the deep breath on Christmas Eve, but maybe we should get it out of our system. I won't do it, but we could. But one day we'll do it when I feel more courageous. That as a whole church, we just, just to get it out of our system, say, things used to be better. There, now we don't have to say it anymore. 
hear me now. Hear me. And yes, I'm talking to you. The Christian faith is not a bleak faith. The Christian gospel is and will always be a message of hope and life and light and salvation and victory. There is never, no, never, reason for despair for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah got pretty close to despair and God gently ministered to him, restoring, granting him provision and company. I'm into this and it might sound like I'm hollering. I don't want to holler at you. There is never, no never reason for despair for those who trust in Christ Jesus. It has been true that the Christian church at times has presented a gospel that is primarily negative, And people could take that to mean that God is mostly against people and woe is us, we're the only ones left. And there's no future. But the gospel is that God reigns and there is a future and God has for us. And don't do that thing you did before where you start saying, is he saying everybody's in? Now you're doing it because I said it. And there is a future and God has for us and for the whole world salvation and hope and light, and life. I'm not saying everybody's in. But what it means is this, that what God has offered you, He has offered everybody. And when you begin to understand this kind of God, it changes everything. The very landscape, every rainstorm is different. Every conversation you have is different, if you're mindful of this. Not when you fall into yourself and just think about what you're feeling, then it's hard. In little verses like even the sparrow, even the smallest bird has found a home. Nobody's forgotten. Everything changes, even how we see death. Sometimes, especially how we see death, the last enemy to be defeated. And Angela Williams, just this past week, I didn't ask her if I could share this with you, so I'll either you know, say thank you for letting me or I'm sorry that I did. Uh, She's not here this morning. But Angela Williams, just this past week with her father, and she spoke to me the next day at lunchtime about being with him as he was breathing, breathing his final breaths. And she said, we were watching his labored breaths. And she said, it's so strange because every time you think, and then he'd struggle for breath again. She says, and then he didn't breathe another. You know what her next words were? She told me the story. And I realized, she said, soon after, that all is well. That's a holy moment. If you want to take God... God of our Lord Jesus Christ and turn him into a small G God who's disappointed all the time, can't stand people, who can't wait to get us. See, that's how you get to the bus campaign. 
they're attacking a God I don't know. The first thing belief does in that case is bring worry. If you want to do that to God, if you want to turn God into a God who's disappointed in people and angry and can't wait to get us, you have to do this thing. And I'm going to really trouble you with this statement. Because some of you seem to, sometimes, I'm not pointing here, but sometimes religious people can seem to want to turn God into that kind of God. If you want to do that, you have to do one thing, okay? Take Jesus out. Because as long as there's Jesus, we don't have to wonder what God thinks about us while we were yet sinners. That's a pagan God. And maybe we haven't killed off all the pagan gods yet. And maybe the neo-atheists are taking up the cause for us. There's probably not a pagan God. So stop worrying and enjoy your life in light of the salvation of Jesus Christ. In this context, God is not turned into a God of rejection. That's the question. Has God rejected? And that's why Paul answers so strongly. By no means. How could you talk about God rejecting? These people have not responded in faith, but as you continue in the reading, you see that there's more to this in Paul's thinking. Look what happened. Paul says, God takes their disbelief, their rejection, and he brings then the message of salvation to people that they thought would never be allowed the message. So he takes their rejection, takes the message of salvation, and brings it to people who were thought of as outsiders so that they can know God's salvation. In this context, they're called Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And Paul says, see how God is even using this rejection in some strange way and bringing the gospel further. Salvation extended after disbelief. This God of ours, you'll never grasp his goodness. As they hardened their hearts, the ones who rejected, and this is a troubling implication in the text, but when you trust in a God who's good, you can at least playfully hold it. And they hardened their hearts, and the text text seems to imply, pretty directly, that God is sovereign even in their rejection. What? And their rejection is not, this is how Paul turns it in, in, in this chapter, their rejection is not that some would be damned, it is that more would be saved. That's the nature of the God of Jesus Christ. And I'll battle you on that every time. If you want to make them smaller and and meaner, I'll fight you on that. Psalm 30, verse 5. Do we have it up? This is how they would have understood it in the Old Testament. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's a resurrection verse. So the second question, those who stumbled, did they stumble out of the possibility of recovery? Now what's the answer there as you look at the text? It's another three-word answer, at least in in this English translation, so it's nice um, because we can remember, by no means, three words, short, exclamation, whatever. Uh, Did the ones who stumbled and rejected, did they stumble out of the possibility of recovery? So did God kind of let them be damned that more would be saved? What's Paul's answer? Three words, not at all. Wait a minute. 
he lays out this interesting possibility that we mentioned, that they didn't believe so that salvation comes to the Gentiles, and they'll see, and then Anne even read the word for us, and then those who see the, the light of God in this world will be envious, that's the word that is in the text, and they'll turn to God as well. Do you see what God is doing? More salvation, more salvation, more salvation. And if you want to be part of a religious institution that says less and less and less, well, there we... We'll have to talk. Back to Elijah in this text and our lives. Lord, they've killed the prophets and torn down the altars, and I'm the only one left. And they want to kill me too. And when I'm done, and when Sutherland's done, if this church... Well, then the whole thing's done. (laughs) Come on. I I thought we believed that God was on the throne. Elijah. Don't you believe? You must believe. And I'm sensitive to the fact, and I've been through crises of faith in my own life, and I don't think that faith means the absence of doubt. Some of you so desperately don't want to doubt that you're afraid to think. That's not Christian faith. So Elijah is facing this crisis, and God doesn't say, Elijah, you terrible person, you should believe. This is where the community comes in, the church community. Elijah I've got 7,000 more. I can handle your disbelief right now. And I'm going to be good to you. But here's the truth. The church must believe. So your faith at times will, will hold those who struggle. And you will need the gift of faith on the part of another person at times in your life. But the church must believe together In this God who is good. And if the church could start believing in a God who is good, just like in this text, maybe more people would too. God of salvation. God of light. The God who meets us in Jesus. And I'll say it because I've believed in my heart and confessed with my mouth. Not as ownership. God of salvation, the God of light. The God who has met me in Jesus. Light of the world. Bigger than even death. Love for all. Reconciles all things. Speaks today. Has for us abundant life and lasting joy. Do you believe this? Is your faith a positive faith? Even in the light of the realities of this world. I am not arguing for blindness or pretense or ignorance. And I will gladly declare, because I don't think it's the last statement, but I will gladly declare we are all of us sinners in need of redemption. But that's what God meant me. Jesus reminds us, he says, in this world you will have trouble. Can you finish the rest for me? In this world you will have trouble. Now let's do this together. But, say it out loud, take Heart, for I've overcome the world. He didn't say, in, in this world, you know, some people will have trouble, but you're, gonna be, you're never going to face it. Just blocks from here, one week ago today, a family who lives, I won't say exactly where, cause that, but you can pray as you drive around the neighborhood. 
uh, a family who lives here lost a 24-year-old son one week ago today in a murder-suicide. He was living, uh, he'd been here over Christmas, and he went back to school in upstate New York. He's a hockey player and apparently an all-around great guy. Sometimes I don't know if people are all-around great people because in social media now, there's always somebody willing to say good things about people. But from what I could discern in these testimonies, this guy was a great guy, 24-year-old uh, young man named Matthew. And uh, he, he was with his, I guess it was his girlfriend, I'm not sure, but they were sleeping. And the ex-boyfriend of that young woman came in and stabbed both of them and then killed himself. The family just blocks away from here. That's what they face this week. No reason to it. No. There's three families in mourning. I hate it. And I can't say why. And none of us are immune. And Christians suffer and die at remarkably the same rate as non-Christians. But I hear the words of Jesus Christ again. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And the God who meets me in Jesus Christ loves me, even me. And if he loves me, I mean, it's just, this is just the truth. If he loves me, then he loves you too. Everyone. Even those who reject. And I, in my faith, leave the question of who's in and who's out up to him. I want to invite people, you today, if you haven't prayed this, to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. I don't know if I believe. Pray. Holy Spirit, show me this belief. And if you've never believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you do that today. But here's what I refuse to do. I will not tag on and or else. Because that sullens the gospel for me. There's no God behind my back waiting to smite you. I'm, I'm asking you, inviting you to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord because that's the truth of the world and the hope for salvation for everyone. Many years ago, centuries ago, someone who became known as a father of the Christian church, um, I always fall behind here, Saint Augustine, though he wasn't a saint, what I mean is he he sinned really, really well. Um, but he became a leader, came to faith, became a leader. He sinned really well even after he became a Christian, by the way. Most of you do too, me too. Uh, and he became a leader in the Christian church and he had many teachers in his influence and they had, in turn had students. And so then the teachers would come to him for advice. And one particular teacher... Um, was troubled by the fact that the people he was teaching, this would be like me saying, oh, they don't care, they're not listening, they don't get it. You know, they're thinking more of the time than they are. That's what I'm thinking of right now. You know, And I always tell myself on these days, well, there's lunch, so you'll still get out of here early enough. But the people aren't listening, so how do I get them to listen? They don't seem to care about what I'm teaching them. And so he asks for, you know, rhetorical tricks or illustrations or jokes or whatever it is, you know. Is there a book, a curriculum I could use? And Augustine gives this great answer that I know in the Spirit. I, I think a lot of you might not know this. I, I, I would hope that you would. 
Augustine's advice to this young teacher, when the teacher says, what do I need? And Augustine's answer is this. It's better that you be delighted. You don't get it. Do you get it? There's no trick. There's no rhetorical device. You know, let's fill out the cards. We'll make sure we call all these people and get them to, let's build this church. You know what would be better? If you, in your faith, were delighted. And that's my question. Are you delighted in God and what he's done for you? This necessity of delight, the God who meets us in Jesus Christ, is a God of love, salvation, hope, future, and blessing, and abundance. Are you delighted? Because he changes not only your life, but but at times, many times, more than any word you say, I'll guarantee you this, your testimony and your evangelism is your actual and honest, not, not full of pretense, your actual and honest delight in the God who loves us. And then, the microphone here, I've got to act this out. I'll just do it with this, and then I'll break it and have to buy a new one. But can't do it with the Bible, right? Here. Nobody respects drumsticks. Okay. And then, at the end of chapter 11, Paul is going to close his theological argument of these last two chapters. And when I'm reading it in the Holy Spirit, and I'm, I mean, I'm old now. Young people would say that. Some of you here think I'm young. That's kind of funny. Um, but... Um, So what Paul does is kind of a young culture thing. Um, It's how I think of it theologically. Paul drops the mic theologically. That's what you do like after a rap battle when you're so sure you won, you just drop the mic. And go to verse 36 if you have your Bibles with you of chapter 11. Because after this whole argument, does God reject? By no means have people stumbled so far that there's no hope. Not at all. Paul drops the microphone theologically. And I'll be lame in doing this, but this is how he says... For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the end of chapter 11. Why do you get an amen at the end of chapter 11? In chapter 12, then he says, therefore. (laughs) Why is he doing this? Would you respond today? Some of you are in such desperate need of recovery of Christian faith because you're not delighted anymore. Your faith is not the source of delight. Your faith just reminds you all the time of what's wrong with the world. Would you pray for that recovery? Would you pray? Go to the back. There'll be people there to pray with. Or sit where you are before you go down for lunch or whatever it is and say, God, would you restore that delight in me? I lost it. And some of you have never prayed, believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We invite you to do that this morning. Go to the back. There'll be people to pray with you. You can ask me or an elder. Thank you for your time. I value it.
It matters to me. But I hope you trust me enough that I'm not going to stop when I feel the Holy Spirit working. Because of the God who meets us in Jesus Christ, we can stop worrying and enjoy our lives. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, would you speak this gospel to us again? Many people who so desperately long to see relatives and others come to faith at times have lost the delight in you. It can become burdensome. It can become tough to be around people like that. They're so faithful, I think maybe they'd say, I'm zealous for God. And maybe like you were with Elijah, we need to be gentle. We need to care. We need not to push away. But would you restore the delight for those people? We want to be a church that delights in you. We'll, um, We'll care for those who can't get there yet. And they're part of us. But we'll keep praying, Lord, would you bring delight to everyone in this place who has faith in you. And Heavenly Father, would you call people for the first time to come to our Lord Jesus Christ and know the light and salvation that's in him, even if they've been part of church for many years but have never prayed this. Give them ears to hear, we ask. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.